on Lumpen Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome again once to another edition of I-94. This edition of I-94 is being taped and broadcast live on October 8th. As always, you can hear I-94 every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. And I want to mention that we have a special live edition of I-94 that will be coming up on October 19th at Pilsen Community Books featuring the work of author Tori Telfer and her book, Lady Killers. But we're not going to be talking about that yet today. We are with author Achi Obeha. She is joining us live by phone from Oakland. Uh, and we're going to tip her in in just one second. But I'm joined, as always, by Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning, Jamie. Good morning. And Michael Sack. Good morning, Jamie. And we're going to be discussing the work of author, a local author, in fact, a former Chicago Tribune reporter who, if yeah. I remember right, won a teamwork Pulitzer uh, for a series of stuff about O'Hare Airport. Maybe she could fill us in on that. But we want to welcome into the studio, through the magic of the phone, Achi Obeas. Achi, are you with us? I am. How are you? Doing welcome, great. Achi. Thank you so much for taking time out to join us this morning. We're going to be discussing, uh, well, I think almost all your books this morning because we have uh, read them all and uh, we have a series of oh readings from them. Yes, well, we're very diligent on this show. At least we try to be. Um, but we want to welcome you on board. And first of all, we'd like to get a little introduction for our listeners who may not be familiar with you. I can tell you that the program previous to this, Contratempo, uh, was astonished that we we're going to be talking to you today. They're big fans of yours, so uh, they wanted to give a shout-out to you as well. Can you give us a little introduction about you and your work for the casual listener who may not be familiar with you, however? <laughs> um, well, I write fiction, and I write. Uh, I used to write a lot of nonfiction. As you mentioned, I was the Tribune for a very long time. Um, and uh, I mostly write about um, issues of um, personal identity, and uh, I write a lot about Cuba. I write a lot about queer people. Um, I'm very interested in the margins. I'm very interested in how power and fate affect people, and uh, I'm very interested in uh, people who are put in sort of terrible positions and have to figure things out. Much like real life. And... I, I, I was going to say, too, that, you know, your work is distinctly Cuban. Uh, Cuba is um, all over everything that I've read by you. Um, if, in, you're someone that I would actually think of, you know, if someone said, who is a quintessential Cuban-American writer, I, I would point you out. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, two questions, one uh, about the Pulitzer that Jamie mentioned and I also mm -hmm. wanted to ask you some questions about Cuban literature in general. Um, I read the Havana Noir collection and your newest book, uh, Tower of Antilles. Is that how you say it? Mm -hmm. and yep, that's it. I'm bad at pronunciation, so I always ask. Um, I read both of those. Um, one of the things I really liked about the Havana Noir collection is you, and as you state in the introduction, you know, Havana has this sort of. Um, New Orleans uh, party reputation. You know, you go there to, to dance the salsa, which you mentioned was not a Cuban uh, dance. <laughs> it's a Puerto Rican dance, and I, I found that fascinating. And I remember, you know, so my great-grandparents were farmers. I'm 47, so this is a long time ago, but they used to go to Havana to party before uh, oh, yeah. before the, the uh, before Castro. Um, but what I'm getting at is there's a, a very... Um, dark element of Havana that we don't see, you know, and the way I kind of compared it to is like when you see, um, you know, the Bourbon Street in New Orleans compared to, you know, what's going on, you know, with the poverty right. and the disenfranchisement. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it, because um, uh, in the collection, the Havana Noir collection, you know, we really looked at the underbelly of, of Havana, but also a very human, um, human side of this of the city as well and although some of the themes are dark there's also some humanity in there and uh, i was just wondering what your thoughts on that were i mean i think you've actually nailed a lot of it um the the city is actually it, it's always fascinated me that americans have such a sort of let's say festive and you know foamy uh view of havana because it's it's always been dark it's always been a city i mean long before uh, the revolution. It was a very violent city, um, in part because we had, you know, pretty constant coup d'etats, thanks to the U.S. government, and uh, we had a lot of uh, American mafia mob figures in Havana. So 
you know, it wasn't unusual if you lived in certain parts of the city, and I'm not even talking about the poor parts, but if you lived in certain parts of the city to, you know, wake up in the morning and have, you know, a cadaver out on the street. Um, you know, violence is sort of endemic to the city, and poverty has always been endemic to the city, um, in part because the city has always been the, the shining light for everybody on the island. If you really wanted to make it, if you really wanted to get out of poverty, um, you know, you came to Havana. Unfortunately, what happened when you got to Havana is that you often found yourself in even worse straits than you were back in your little provincial town. Um, that's still at play in a, a slightly different way, but um, it's still at, at play. What isn't, what, what isn't part of the Havana of today is the kind of, um, it, you know, gunplay, let's say, that there used to be and the kind of political instability that there used to be. Um, whether you like or love the revolution, what they've done is stabilize the whole political situation. Nobody wonders who the president is today. Everybody knows. Um, in fact, we, we know who the president's going to be tomorrow and, you know, a couple years from now. Um, so that's that's one thing that's, that's sort of different. But poverty is... Uh, you know, a great generator of terrible schemes, and uh, and you know, desperation will make you do all kinds of crazy things. And one of the, I, I'm surprised you you uh, you refer to Havana Noir as having so much humanity because I usually, what people usually say to me is, "Oh my God, that book is so intensely dark and violent." Um, well, Jeremy but, is the malcontent um, of the group, so you know, I got to point that out. Yes, I'm known as a malcontent, and. Um, my life is, my life is, uh, I'm a, actually a librarian at Chicago Public Library, but uh, I have a, I had a very um, interesting life before, um, I'm actually in uh, uh, recovery too, and before I got sober, I, um, I've been on the dark side, I guess, way to put it, and that's the thing a lot of times when people read um, fiction or nonfiction about uh, disparity, violence things like that people don't know you know it's just like you know it's just like when they portray gangbangers on uh, in movies and tv you know right they don't they're not people they're just these like caricatures of human beings and and you know i i used to be a social worker and i i i know a lot of gangbangers and i've hung out with them and actually mike and i and jamie have friends that were in gangs and most of them are pretty good people you know they were just in bad situations and i when i say humanity you know when you look at people for more than what their caricature is, I guess, you know, you can be a violent guy, right. but you can also be, you know, have some humanity in you too. Um, so that's kind of what I was talking about, not kind of, that's what right. I was talking about. Well, but. you know, it's interesting because I do think that Havana has a, let's say, there's a greater distance between the, the sort of uh, sunny, romantic, you know, side of the city and then these really deep, dark, black parts. Of town, I remember one of my very first, uh, you know, visits to Cuba. One of my, my, I don't know, it was maybe ninety, ninety eight or something like that. Um, I had, I, I had become inadvertently, I had become friends with the guy who became the minister of culture, and somebody, and we were hanging out, and somebody in the room said something about, you know, Havana being such an extraordinary city, blah blah blah, and I piped in with how I was so in love with it and he turned to me the goddamn minister whoops the minister of uh of culture turned to me and he said but it's also diabolical you'll discover it's diabolical and he used the word like five times and i thought i wonder what he's trying to impress on me but then later i sort of began to see what was going on and what what it was that the underbelly that terrible part of what desperation no matter how good you are makes you do in order to survive well it's interesting too you, you bring that up because when um, my grandparents emigrated to america from scotland my grandfather spent a considerable amount of time in havana in the 20s uh he was mm. a, a master carpenter and he was building uh church steeples and cathedrals and i believe he was raising uh barns and and racetracks uh if memory mm -hmm. serves um he passed away a number of years ago at 100 but he was um he was my in the kind of family lore. Havana was always a place where you could go and kind of make a quick buck, and he would eventually right. settle in Florida, which of course has a, a large Cuban population oh, as right, well. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting that one of the points you make in 
uh, a number of the stories, especially in the Tower of Antilles, is that Havana also was uh, essentially, for, for many Westerners, especially from the United States, a kind of open-air brothel. Uh, it was a place filled with sex workers, and that was one of the main attractions to go there. And you say that explicitly in a couple stories that, unfortunately, we could not excerpt from because the FCC doesn't allow us to do these kind of things. But I'm thinking specifically <laughs> of, of Superman uh, in, right. in your book, which is a fairly straightforward and, and felt a very honest, if um, almost... I don't like using the word magic realism. That's two words, I guess. But uh, I don't like using it. But it does seem like a very straightforward uh, representation of at least the idea of what was going on in Havana in a particular time. Um, that, that, according to what I've been told in my family, was, was very accurate. So I wondered if you could just speak a little bit to that. Sure. Well, Superman is actually based on a real person. I was wondering and, about uh, that. I was actually wondering about that because that was the story. Yeah. I love that story. <laughs> Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I love that story, too. Um, and, you know, it was, it, that's actually um, based on a real person, somebody who really, uh, you know, was in play in Havana, who worked in Havana for almost 30 years as a kind of a star attraction at a very real theater called the Shanghai Theater. In fact, everything I wrote about that theater is down to the wire true, including the fact that, bizarrely, they had daycare for uh, the children of the sex workers and the, the, the folks who participated in the shows. Um, he was um, somebody from a very poor neighborhood, uh, and he basically disappeared after the revolution. No one really knows what happened to him. But um, he was quite legendary, and uh, one of the reasons I came up with the idea for the story is that in his old neighborhood, um, Los Sitios, people still talk about him. I mean, it's been you know, 40-some-odd years, almost 50 years, um, actually 50-some years, um, and there's still graffiti about him. People still, uh, you know, refer to him as if he had just been there the day before. You know, he's one of the glories of the neighborhood. Um, but he's somebody who, you know, is, is, is like this weird cult figure, Um you know, there, there's a reference to him in The Godfather Part Two. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. No, I, no, I, I don't think any of us have I, ever seen that movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a scene. There's a yeah. You never know. And there's a scene in in The Godfather Part Two where they go to Havana and uh, they go to a sex show and this little skinny black guy comes out in a red cape and runs around a woman who's like tied to a stake or something. Um, and that's actually a kind of a, a a takeoff on a little bit of what he used to do. Uh, but he used to have, you know, live sex with American tourists on stage while others watched. And, um, he, I mean, you know, I in that story, you know, my where my imagination kind of comes into play is in creating the backstory, um, you know, the, the, the details about the, the friends and the neighbors. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I... I created a whole backstory with, uh, you know, the possible wife or girlfriend, and um, also, um, you know, his his sort of supposed thinking about controlling his great talents um, and things of that nature. Um, there are rumors about him in the Cuban press and the official revolutionary Cuban press that have been published about his having an affair with. Uh, uh, Eva Gardner, and also um, about his having this encounter with uh, Marlon Brando, um, it, it, which was fascinating to me because, of course, the the Cuban media doesn't have you know a whole lot of rules about uh, libel and slander and stuff like that. <laughs> These are public figures, so you can sort of do whatever. But um, it was a it was a great fun to sort of uh, integrate all of that stuff into something that was sort of cohesive and, and, and stuff. I, I'm fascinated by the fact that this was at play in Havana because one of the things people don't realize is that pre-revolution, prostitution was completely legal in Cuba and it was regulated. Um, it wasn't just, you know, you slap a little sign on the door and you let people in. I mean, it was absolutely licensed. You had to have, you know, X number of bathrooms. You're... You know, people had to have, you know, health tests every month. It was a pretty serious business because, of course, they 
made so much money off of it that they were very deeply invested in keeping everybody very healthy. Um, and so the you know they could only work so many hours, they could only do so many tricks, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was it was regulated down to the wire, which doesn't mean that some people didn't you know break the rules and do their own thing. But for the most part, especially in the high class clubs like you know the Mambo Club and all those things, um, they were pretty seriously regulated. There there was you know there were actual government inspectors just for brothels. Wow. Uh, I imagine that is your job. Well, I, I can't imagine that. Unfortunately, just, we, we can't play an excerpt from that, but we do have an excerpt that we're going to play from the Tower of Antilles right now from the story uh, Exile. Uh, the FCC doesn't really look kindly on stories about sex work, but we're going to be back in about three minutes. This is a, an excerpt again from Akio Beas' Tower of Antilles. It is from Exile. He will get down on his knees. He will bend his legs and approach us face to face on the deck of the ship. For a moment, it might look like he's going to squat, but he doesn't. He just kneels like a penitent, leans back a little, then catches himself and straightens up again, like davening, but not quite. This is the myth we tell, about our father as a younger man kneeling on the deck of a ship, whispering to us about civic society, about Lincoln and the First Amendment. Actually, that's not true. He would never have talked about the First Amendment. He would have more likely mentioned democracy or, or freedom. That's the word he liked the most. We kept this secret. The iron hissing on the dining room table, the towels moist, our mother's hair splayed on the cloth, her chin just off the edge. A black thread of smoke. Then this one. The champagne bottle, a brutal club in her hand, the champagne an arch like a morning star. But not these. The bar on US-12 with the sawdust on the floor. The bar at the mall that stayed open past the shopping center's closing hours. The bar downtown where the high school teachers held their book club discussions and gossiped and flirted and gave each other strategic rides home that were acted out as spontaneous. We wanted to be Jews. We wanted to be Polish or German. We would have settled for Danish. A boy with relatives in Copenhagen explained to us that all blue-eyed people on Earth are related to a single ancestor whose genes mutated between six and 10,000 years ago. We explained that where we come from, the greatest achievement is to leave. Most of us held clerical, semi-skilled and service jobs, our median income well below the national norm. We preferred to think that we were lawyers, doctors, teachers, paramedics, industry giants, the president of Coca-Cola, unbelievably popular and successful pop stars, and media titans. We cared for our grandparents, our cousins, our aunts and uncles, for the offspring of the friends who didn't make it over, for our own kids when they refused to leave home. We had nuclear households plus one, sometimes two. We curled into a ball, all of us, in the back seat of that Pontiac. We did not want to look to hear the altercation outside by the gas pump. We prayed no one would notice us, our pink flesh, our red lips. We prayed no one would ask for the words we could not form with our stiff fingers, forced like a cough from our bruised mouth. When a cousin refused breakfast, a fried egg, a slab of grilled ham, a greasy toast, we witnessed an uncle push her chair closer to the table. She was wearing flannel and had a rash. Hours later, he piled lunch next to the fried egg, ham, and toast, a hill of rice, and a smear of spicy ground beef. She swung her legs, meaty little limbs, tolling away the hours. In the afternoon, a glass of milk, a banana. For dinner came a cut of liver, onions brown in its juice, a bowl of Neapolitan ice cream with three bulging scoops. He was making a point. We listened, enraptured, to the moon landing on a radio in Loomis Park in Miami Beach. We are aware there are 227 kinds of birds in the Grand Canyon, only 26 fish. We admire public art. We are citizens and we vote, not for a particular party, but for and against ideas. A man named Walter Ponish once made the same trip we did, only he swam it. He rotated his body along its long axis with every arm stroke so that the shoulder of the recovering arm was always higher than the shoulder of the other arm the one that pushed and pulled. This way, there will always be less need to turn to breathe. When one shoulder is out of the water, it reduces drag. When it falls, it aids the arm in catching the water. When the other shoulder rises, 
It will help the arm at the other end of the push to leave the water. When we heard about the trip, at first we thought Walter Ponish had done it in reverse from here to there. Then we read that it wasn't 90 miles, but 129, that he took necessary breaks for medical purposes, and that it took him 34 hours, protected in a shark cage. And that was a reading from Achebeos's The Tower of Antilles, The Story Exile. And we want to thank, as always, Makai McRaven and the International uh, Anthem Recording Company. That is from a new forthcoming McRaven uh, release. In fact, I'm not even sure that it's been released yet, but he's been very kind to allow us to use that as his backing music. So, Achi, The Tower of Antilles, um, can you tell us a little bit, first of all, about uh, the story Exile? I mean, it seems uh, self-evident to somebody that's lived in Florida, as I have, but maybe our listeners have not. Um, the Tower of Antilles is, um, is a little autobiographical story about uh, coming over, about um, assimilating, about trying to fit in, um, and, uh, and just trying to make sense of things in the United States and uh, why we're here. Um, you know, when I wrote it initially, I wasn't sure. It's bizarre, but I wasn't sure if it was a poem or a story. I kept laying it out in different ways, trying to maneuver it and seeing how it, it worked. Um, but um, that was sort of, yeah, that's it. That's, that's exile. <laughs> you, uh, you touched on a couple interesting things. One is, um, is poetry. And you... You play with language really well, and it comes through very clearly in in all your work that you have a deep love of language. And um, thank you. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering, you know, Jer- Jeremy introduced me a while ago to um, Three Trapped Tigers, the the Infante novel, the big honker, oh, yeah. and that that that's a novel of Cuban literature, and, and it deals a lot with. Um, Wordplay, originally written in Spanish. I was wondering. It's one of my favorite books of all time, actually. It's it's a monster, and uh, I was wondering if you found it easier or more fun to to play with language in Spanish or English, or um, if you felt a big difference between the two, thinking and writing. Yeah, what a good question. Um, my voice is very different in Spanish than it is in English, and I wish I could explain why that is. But um, um, it's, uh, it's, I think it's a little bit more serious in Spanish. Um, and part of it is because, though Spanish is my native language and I'm fully fluent in it, um, English is the language with which I grew up. And to a certain extent, especially now, um, English is the language of my everyday life, and so to a certain extent, there's a a, a greater confidence in English, even though there may be greater comfort in Spanish for me, and so I tend to play more in English than I do in Spanish. Although I'm not a punster the way Guillermo Carrera Infante is. Um, You're right, he right, right, right. Three, yeah, three trap typer. I mean, he, it, you know, I. I'm always very much in awe of his translators. Um, usually it's uh, Susan Jill Levin. I think that's who did Three Tribe Tigers. And um, um, because he is, you know, the punning is just nonstop, right. especially uh, in his later work. Um, and he he really loved to also to take words apart etymologically and stuff like that, which uh, I find really fun to read, but I, I'm not... As, as inclined to, to play with them. Well, a lot of times people, like everyone compares people to Joyce that you that are experimenting with language and they don't read anything like Joyce. And I, I wonder if that, <laughs> you know, because you're Cuban and, and, you know, that you obviously love language that you fall into the cat. Oh, it's like a three-trap tiger. You know, everything gets compared to Joyce. Right. Right. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think that the the writers who I look to and who I feel have influenced me are, um, are, are, are in fact, not Cabrera Infante, but more like Reynaldo Arenas. I don't know how familiar you are with his work. But no, not at all. I, oh, he's the guy who wrote uh, Before Night Falls. Um, oh, okay. I don't know if you saw the, you know, if you saw the movie, but his poet, use correct? of languages. He's a poet? I'm sorry? Is he a poet? He's a, well, he wrote poetry. But he uh, he's best known for his novels. But the way he wrote novels was very unconventionally. I mean, uh, language and repetition and 
the way he built images was really extraordinary. Uh, he was, he's an amazing writer. And there's another Cuban writer named Vigilio Piñera, who is known as a, as a playwright and as a poet, uh, more than as a, than as a, a, a prose writer. But he has one uh, collection in English called Cold Tales that are amazing. They're very short little stories. And again, I love his work very much because of the way uh, he plays with language. But I also, you know, I I also read, you know, spend a lot of time reading Richard Stein, and I, um, you know, I I adore Olga Brumis, and uh, I spend a lot of time reading poetry as a general rule. I mean, I I read poetry every single day. I may not get around to reading prose, but I make a point of reading at least one poem a day. We should let uh, listeners know Achi also works as a translator. Um, are in, there into uh, Spanish? We should note actually because you did Juno Diaz's novel from English into Spanish. Into Spanish. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, I do. I go both ways. I'm bitextual. Bitextual. <laughs> that's good. I like that. <laughs> I was I was waiting for that joke to drop. Well done. Um, <laughs> I wanted to know if you have any favorites of Cuban literature or even um, Spanish language literature at large that haven't been translated yet. That maybe you kind of dream about uh, taking on as a project or someone else taking on as a project? Well, I, there's a poet named Nicolás Guillén from Cuba. He's uh, an Afro-Cuban guy. He started writing in the, uh, in the 19-teens, uh, and uh, he died, I think it was like the 70s or 80s. Anyway, he was productive for like some crazy number of years. Can you say and the name again? Is, I'm sorry? Can you say the name again? Yes, Nicolas Guillen. Guillen, okay. G-U-I-L-L-E-N, Guillen. Um, Thank you. Anyway, he writes this really driving, um, rhythmic, uh, sometimes nonsensical poetry. Um, and in Latin America, it's, it's canonical. But in the United States, it's been um, translated very rarely and often not well. Um, the, the first translations... Um, were actually by Langston Hughes and uh, Ben Carruthers. Um, and it, it's really interesting to read what they did because they, they translated him into a kind of a southern uh, black vernacular. And, of course, very much of the time they used words like colored and, you know, uh, boy and stuff like that, stuff, ways that we would not translate now because, you know, language being fluid, it's kind of moved on from that. Um, but uh, Guillen was very much an urban poet, very sh- politically sharp and, and, uh, and very, uh, you know, aware of racial disparity. Anyway, I, I, would, I would love an opportunity to get my hands on, 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 on that and really get it published. I've, I have translated quite a bit of his stuff for anthologies and, you know, I had in a lot of it for my own, you know, exercise. But I, I think he's somebody who's very relevant in his... Um, just fascinating as a writer, but of course he's incredibly difficult to translate because he, like I said, you know, if you don't know what he's doing, you you get you can get really lost. Uh, he um, his uh, his language is is sometimes mixed with Yoruba, and sometimes it sounds like Yoruba, but it's completely nonsense. Uh, there's a phrase of his songo um, songo, which means literally nothing, <laughs> but uh, has become very much a part of of like music language and like you hear it in songs. Uh, Hector Lavoe, in in was one of the great salsa singers of the seventies, has a song called Songo Rokosongo, and and that's the the kind of the refrain. And and you you hear that that phrase sometimes in the background. You go what? Hmm. Well, we have to go to a quick station break here, but uh, when we come back, we're going to hear another excerpt from Achi's work, an excerpt from Ruins. I want to remind everybody, of course, that you are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. This is I-94. We'll be right back. Thanks for sticking with us. Lumpen Radio is sponsored by Mars Community Brewing. Makers of I Bet You've Never Had a Grisette as Wet as We Let This Grisette Get. It's a wet hopped grisette collab with Against the Grain. What's a grisette? We don't know, but it probably shouldn't be wet hopped with fresh Michigan Centennial hops. Who cares? At 4.4% ABV, this Saison-like beer was made for Belgian miners and you. 
More information at marzbrewing.com. What's Mars is yours. Lumpen Radio's Books and Literature show, I-94, has teamed up with Pilsen Community Books to present live pop-up radio. On October 19th, join the boys and author Tori Telfer for a discussion of her book, Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History. Seating is extremely limited. For more information and to RSVP, visit pilsencommunitybooks.org. Pilsen Community Books supports Lumpen Radio. The Dill Pickle has offered Chicago locally sourced food choices since 2009, using the benefits of cooperative practice to build a vibrant community and a more sustainable world. The brand new Logan Square location is hosting its grand opening this Sunday, October 8th, at 2746 North Milwaukee. There will be live music and product samples. For more information, visit dillpickle.coop. Lumpin' Radio is proud to be supported by Dill Pickle. Community owned, locally grown. Story Club Southside is a night for stories at the Co-Prosperity Sphere. Every third Tuesday, Story Club offers eight-minute open mic slots to anyone who has a story to tell. We also pick a theme and ask featured storytellers to tell a story about that theme. In October, Story Club's theme is dark, and we ask that you bring a flashlight. Really? The doors open at 6.30 for a storytelling workshop, and the stories start at 8. That evening, Usnavi was late for his domino game. First, he had to rush to the bodega to store the injured lamp. There was no room in the tenement on Tiadio, and besides, he didn't want to tell Lydia and Nina that he'd gotten it by rummaging in the trash like their awful neighbors. He didn't want to relive that terrible moment when he'd told them the bike was stolen because of his carelessness, and he'd caught the two of them looking at each other knowingly, worriedly. At the bodega, his co-workers looked at him in the lamp sconce and asked if he was all right. Conscience-stricken, Usnavi just muttered and lowered his eyes and hurried out again. He raced home for a dinner of salty white rice under the lustrous light of the magnificent one. The signature, damn it, he'd look for it later when he had time, before making his way over to the comfort of the game and his friends. How I wish I had my bike, he complained under his breath as he moved along. The blister on his foot was growing, now a bubble of delicate skin that grazed the shoe's leather and caused him to wince with each step. Even under normal circumstances, when it came to walking, Usnavi was not a typical Cuban. Most Cubans love to stroll, to saunter about as if an actual destination were a second thought. But he hated walking, hated getting lost in the crowds, hated the way the air hung on him sticky and hot. On foot, everything took longer, especially now that the government was allowing artists and craftspeople to gather in certain parks in Old Havana and on the Malecón. People spilled out into the streets without regard, treating the sidewalks as storefronts or vitrines, showcasing their meager fruits, cheap watches, and spare parts. The rusted pedal from a sewing machine, for example, or the handle from a meat grinder. With the heat and humidity gripping him, Usnavi considered every gesture an exhausting struggle, as if he were living in slow motion. Guapong! Frank yelled, pointing at his watch. Usnavi was out of breath. He'd had to fight the crowds milling at the bus stops as well as the bread line at a nearby shop, plus all the usual hustlers. The blister, he knew without looking, had burst. His skin was raw down there. On his bike, he could have avoided all of this, since cars had practically disappeared because of the lack of fuel. On a bike, the streets were now like thoroughfares. How he missed cruising downhill on his flying pigeon, how he yearned to glide on the open roads, the wind in his hair. He never even thought about driving a car, never imagined himself free behind the wheel, never longed for it at all. What's the matter with you? This, now that we need you? Frank said in mock reprimand. Frank loved to jab, loved to poke. Most of the time he didn't mean to hurt anybody, but sometimes he plain relish making people squirm, whether from pain or embarrassment. It was as if he couldn't tell the difference. Usnavi threw himself down at the domino table. 
gasping like he never did when he rode? Why did his lungs prefer one mode so clearly over the other? Under the table, he discreetly pulled his foot out of his shoe, resting it on top, letting the burst blister breathe. Without Abdulia, there were just four of them now, the exact number required to play. Sure, they could have had anybody else join in. In fact, it was perfectly common for neighbors to drop by the game to watch or ask in. And when one of the friends wanted a break, they'd let somebody else play. Usually Oscar Luis, a former geologist turned cab driver who lived nearby. But by having the fifth man be one of their own, Usnavi, the friends had always kept complete control of the game. If somebody they didn't like showed up, they stalled. An extra man could make the wait last forever. Conversely, an extra man could pressure a stranger out of the game faster if he got in at all. The guys who watched regularly, the sapos as they were affectionately called, all knew the rules, nobody had to tell them. And part of the entertainment value of the game resided precisely in how the friends dealt with strangers who showed up unexpectedly. That was grist for the best stories to tell later, at home to the wife or lover, at work the next day, or even later, right there on the Montserrate, when the looming stars allowed the tale to go on however it needed. Noandri, the sparkling man, and their Tiffany tales had nothing on these guys, thought Usnavi, who loved going home and regaling Lydia with accounts harvested at the domino game. And welcome back to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. That was a selection, again, from the author, Aki Obejas. That was from her book, Ruins. That is a uh, passage late in the book uh, with the titular hero of that book discussing dominoes and one of the objects that makes a large appearance in the novel, which is a Tiffany lamp. Aki, I wondered if you could take us through, for the listeners that have not read the book, uh, what's actually going on in that scene. I found that to be a very illustrative and emotive scene about Cuban life, as well as some of the panic that you've built up throughout that particular novel. Um, well, I mean, the book is um, about a very terrible time uh, in recent Cuban history, when the economy had completely collapsed after the fall of the Soviet Union, and people in Cuba were really, really desperate. Um, at the beginning of the, the 90s. And at one point it got pretty bad, and um, people actually kind of rose up uh, in Havana um, against Fidel. And his methodology for dealing with a lot of this pressure has historically been to open a port and let people leave. Um, he did it in 1965, he did it in 1980, and he did it again in 1994. Um, and so the book takes place during the summer when um, everybody's leaving, and the the protagonist of the book, a guy named Usnavi, uh, is very much a, a man of the revolution. He's a very simple and humble man, um, but he's very committed. His entire life has been about the revolution. He really believes that the revolution has made uh, his life, if not better, uh, you know, has made his life, has given his life purpose for. Uh, building a better future for his family. But, um, and he's, you know, his thing is hanging out with his friends who, uh, whose main activity for pleasure or leisure is to, to play dominoes on the streets, which is a very common thing. If you go through any Cuban town, you will inevitably find a table with four guys sitting outside somewhere playing dominoes. It's, it's a given. Um, and, uh, and so he, um, He's, he's struggling because he, he's very much committed to this thing, but his, everybody around him is leaving or contemplating leaving. His wife and uh, daughter clearly want to leave. Uh, and then in the midst of all this, um, he's the owner of a, of a Tiffany lamp. He doesn't quite understand that it's a Tiffany lamp. He knows uh, it's this beautiful thing, and he, was, he inherited it from his, uh, from his parents, from his family. And... Uh, he doesn't understand that uh, it's it's got this uh, insane value, but as the book goes on, he begins to understand that there are other uh, of these lamps in Cuba. They they might be fakes, they might be the real thing, but what they absolutely are is valuable for uh, the underground trade. And so he begins basically to scavenger and to wheel and deal to get these because he uh, finds himself sort of not only needing the money to help his family, but also enjoying having the money, which is a very sort of precarious 
spiritual position for him to be in. Etchie, I wanted to ask you a question about uh, Havana Noir and your story. And I'm going to probably slaughter it. Zen Zizen Zik, is that right? Zen Zen Zik, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Close>. <laughs> I'm really bad at pronunciation. Um, so, okay. first of all, I, I thought the story was phenomenal. I, I loved it. Thank uh, you. I This was my favorite story in the collection, and I'm not just saying that because you're on the show. Oh, wow. Um there's some really good stories in that collection. I know, it's phenomenal. And you know what? I, I I haven't been a fan of all the noir collections. I read the Memphis one, which I liked a lot. I thought the the retro Chicago one was good, but I didn't love the contemporary Chicago one. That's just... Um, yeah, I, I thought the contemporary Chicago one was one of the weaker entries in the series. I got it. I'm in it, but I know that it wasn't the strongest one. Whoa, dissing the contemporary Chicago one. I'm not dissing, uh, actually. I'm yeah. dissing the editor. No, I mean, I... I a lot, a lot of people I love are in that book, and uh, I recommend it. In fact, a lot of people for that book. But I do think that uh, it wasn't, it wasn't as strong as some other ones. I could, I mean, I agree. I, mean, I think there's some really strong ones. I think I don't know if you've read the Trinidad one. It's no. amazing. I'm actually gonna. Yeah. I'm actually gonna email you after the show and ha- have you give us a list of all these authors you're talking about because <laughs> I'm not. One, right. one of the reasons we do this show is, um, uh, it's to turn people on to writers that people may never have heard of and free books right. and, and and free books of course but the other thing is, is <laughs> we like to cover um chicago midwest books in translation um small presses you know things that aren't going to necessarily make sure. it make it into the new york times bestseller list but i wanted to you're, ask you you're doing god's work, god's work. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much but i wanted to you know the character of tom Mahler. he was like the um uh, pet foreigner. Yeah, he's like the pet right. American. Uh, and they were talking about um, in the story how every family strives to have like a pet foreigner that can bring them things from outside the country. Simple things such as flour, I believe. Wasn't that one of the... Uh, and and Tom Mahler in the story was bringing medical uh, computer software and things like that. Is this, um, mm-hmm. is this a real phenomenon, the pet foreigner? Oh, absolutely. That's... <laughs> Yeah, no, I didn't make that up. That's uh, an app. I mean, that was part of my fascination, uh, the notion of the pet foreigner. Listen, let me let me give you an example from real life okay. of how far it goes, okay? Um, a lot of the time that I was living in Havana, I was there because I had a girlfriend who was an artist. Her uh, assistant uh, had a Cuban husband. She also had a Spanish lover. And when the Spanish lover came to visit, the Cuban husband literally moved out of the house. We would help him move out of her apartment. We would remove all signs of his existence so that when the Spanish lover showed up, um, he would, you know, not feel threatened by the Cuban lover. Her entire family was aware of this performance that had to be played out for this Spanish guy. Why? Well, because the Spanish guy would drop money on them whenever he came, and he would bring things for them that were essential, um, especially medicine for her family um, and a lot of things for her son. Um, eventually, she left her Cuban husband and, uh, you know, married the um, Spanish lover, and uh, she was with him for almost, I don't know, 15 years, and then she divorced him and went back to the Cuban husband, believe it or not. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, that is, that is actually not as crazy a story as it might sound, this notion of actually cleaning out the, uh, the, the apartment, making it seem as though, you know, they've been waiting forever for this guy. So it absolutely, uh, does happen. There are a lot of situations in Cuba right now that are problematic in terms of how things work. For example, now you can buy property in Cuba. Okay, it's possible now to do that, except for the average Cuban, it's impossible to do that because, among other things, there are no mortgages. You have to have cash, uh. and and so we're talking, especially because of this inflated market, of you know, it's often you know uh, over a hundred thousand dollars cash for you know even the most humble abode. So it it engenders a need for a, a foreign Cuban partnership. The Cuban to have the right to buy because foreigners can't buy. 
I legally see. foreigners can't buy. But the Cubans don't have the capital. Amazing. So what ends up happening is that a lot of people marry or set up, you know, informal agreements. And so you need the pet foreigner to do these kinds of things. You know, you... Um, and th- there was a time when the pet foreigner was even more imperative for simple things. For example, there were stores that, were, that only allowed in foreigners. You had to show a foreign passport wow, to go in. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, there's so yeah, that doesn't happen anymore. That doesn't happen anymore. There's so much. To there's so much uh, we don't know about Cuban history. And the one other thing I wanted to ask you about was Chinatown. Um, some of the stories in Havana Noir, and I read, um, I, I looked in an encyclopedia. They said there's a there's roughly like a one percent of the Cuban population is is Chinese. Um, but you also, I, I can't remember if it was your story or another story, but it said it was a Chinatown without Chinese people. Um, can you just el- yeah. elaborate that on a little? I never, I've never in my thoughts of Cuba have ever associated, and, and now thinking about it in hindsight, obviously two communist countries that Chinese would be able to. Now, are the Chinese supporting Cuba now that Russia's kind of tanked? Or, uh, no, and actually, the, the Chinatown is historic. It goes back to the 19th century. Um, it has to do, actually, with American immigration because of all, you know, the, the American immigration laws, the first people they kept out were the Chinese. And so a lot of Chinese on their way to the United States would get trapped in Havana. They couldn't, they couldn't come oh. in. And so instead of... Um, you know, instead of coming to the States to work in the railroads or any of the traditional ways that Chinese used to come in and work, they would stay in Cuba and cut sugarcane. And they, um, in, in, or, you know, become, do the things that Chinese people have done always, in, you know, wherever they emigrate, you know, set up laundries, they, you know, set up uh, restaurants, uh, you know, natural medicine, you know, stores, whatever. Um, and they actually spread throughout the island. And at one point, there was actually a fairly strong presence. It was considerably more than five than one percent. It was something like you know eight or nine percent. The thing is, um, it, you know, it's twofold. One, that immigration was overwhelmingly male because they were laborers, and so they married into Cuban society. In fact, ah. they frequently married black women. So they they disappeared in that way. You know, they've sort of, you know, blended into the fabric of this greater Cuban racial stew. Um, but the other thing is that under the revolution, no, there were, the relations with China were terrible because Cuba was very much aligned with the Soviet Union. Oh, um, okay. And the, the Chinatown is, is, uh, is, is performative. It, I mean, there, there are no Chinese people that actually really run it. A lot of the people who are Asian who... Uh, are in any way engaged in Chinatown or actually Vietnamese because there was some movement from Vietnam, North Vietnam to, uh, and obviously, you know, the, a united Vietnam, a unified Vietnam, um, you know, into Cuba. So you see some of that. There's very few actual Chinese. Although, curiously, the chi- there's a Chinese daily that's actually published on paper and in Chinese uh, in Havana, we're always amused, my friends and I, about this because we 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 literally know not one person who <laughs> reads that paper. <laughs> um, I mean, because the Vietnamese folks obviously don't read Chinese, so it's really a, a curiosity. But if you actually go to Chinatown, the people who serve you in their satin uniforms, you know, at the restaurants, if you look, you realize they're not Chinese. They're uh, you know either very mixed. Uh, people, uh, or or they're white, or they're black, but they're not they're not Asian, they're not Chinese. I'm glad uh, we're touching on all this in from the noir stories. You you mentioned in the preface to um, that collection, which you edited, that only one of the stories actually involves a detective, and um, you know I think <laughs> sometimes noir is synonymous with a detective even though that's not necessarily the case. My point being is that um, a lot of your stories and a lot of the stories in Havana Noir contain a lot of stuff. It's not easy to pin down a genre on your work. Um, or her work uh, in gen- your work in general. Yeah, and, and one story that I think we, we were all fascinated with in the Tower of Antilles, or Antilles was um, Kimberly. And that story could probably pick 
be picked up by like four or five different genre anthologies you know <laughs> erotica uh, midwestern noir midwestern noir right. totally um queer fiction um crazy girlfriend crazy girlfriend yeah. story we can't put, story we could not excerpt and play on the radio but we wanted to um did i wanted to know if you had um trouble publishing a lot of your stuff early on because it's not easy to categorize and you don't wrap stuff up in bows which i love you know but i know that's probably not an easy sell Plus, they don't have the Cuban Jewish queer fiction anthologies coming out yet, that often. Yet. Yet. Oh, God, I would love to do that. <laughs> I love seeing that. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, honestly, I, I haven't had a, a terribly difficult time getting published. I mean, um, part of it is that I don't, um, I don't produce that much in terms of short stories. So it's not as though I'm constantly trying to get stuff out and then usually when I have something I I can place it I mean maybe if I produced more um, it, you know there'd be more of a glut and people say nah but um, I, I, I've been lucky I think um, in that way um, well, I, don't, I, I don't I, I don't necessarily I'm think sorry? it's luck I think you're a pretty great writer yeah. uh, you well, know if you're you. a great writer it's easier to get published than it you know than being yeah. loophole. Thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, I've, I, you know, I feel like, uh, and at this point, I mean, I, my, you know, I'm, I'm not Juno Diaz, but I, I have a name. And so sometimes, uh, that will, um, that will work. I mean, it's not like my stories don't get rejected sometimes, but, uh, it's, uh, it's unusual. Usually, I mean, I, I very rarely spend a lot of time sending stuff out. Usually somebody will say, have something, I'd love to see it. And then that's kind of how uh, that works, uh, and and you know, and honestly, sometimes uh, you know, when when I get rejected, I'm sort of glad about it. I what is it? There's a Chicago journal called Fifth, Fifth Wednesday Journal. Are you familiar with it? No, no. no. Oh, they're really good. They're a wonderful little literary um, journal, and they've done some great work, especially with local people. You guys should get together. Yeah, um, we're gonna look that and, up. <laughs> Um, and I, I have a story that I sent to them that they, uh, again, they had said, do you want to get something? And, uh, I, you know, I really thought, well, this will be just a, an easy one. And, you know, the story actually wasn't working. So I was really happy that they kicked it back to me because uh, I think it would have been a little bit embarrassing. Um, and I was lucky that they actually said, look, you know, we really want to have you in the magazine, but this one just isn't there. Um, it's a... You know, it's it's a it's a rare moment, but I appreciate those kinds of things because you feel like you you also want to be protected from yourself. Right. Sometimes you don't have a lot of distance between what you've done, and 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 you know you can't really see it clearly. So it's important to to also work with with editors who you know respect you enough to kick it back at you and say this is this is why it's not working. Try it, try again or whatever. Anyway, this story has been a a, a real conundrum for me. I can't seem to get it done but perhaps someday i will well we are just out of time here we just want to thank uh acha bass for being here she's published by ballantyne and akashic books uh acha do you have a new book coming out that you can tell our readers about quickly no the tower and the chilies is the 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 one uh just came out this summer and we're we're uh pushing it there's a story from the tower of the antilles in the current bomb magazine out of new york uh, and I'm working on a collection of poetry. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Well, we're going to close the show out with a final selection from your novel, Days of Awe. And again, we want to thank Acho Baez. You can thank find you, out Acho. more information about her, uh, Akashic Books' website, also Ballantine Books, and uh, she's very easy to find. Achi, thanks so much for spending part of your Sunday morning with us. We really greatly thank appreciate it. Thank you, you guys. It. This is really fun. This thank really you. Take care, Achi. Please say hi to the guys from Cook the Tempo, too. We will. We will. We will. I've got to call Stephanie right after the show, so we will. And Marco Polo. <laughs> Thank you so much. And everybody, you've been listening to I-94. We'll be back in two weeks. My father, Enrique, dropped from my grandmother Sima's womb on a cloudy August day in 1920 in a tiny house on a muddy acre near the one-lane town of Meari in Oriente. For good luck, a rooster's severed head hung from the door of the room like mistletoe. Adim Chanath Chouts Lilith was written in the animal's blood on the doorframe. It was a time of great prosperity in Cuba. The natives called it the Dance of the Millions. 
No one could know that, less than a decade later. The country would be practically bankrupt and under one of the bloodiest dictatorships in its history. Enrique's father was Luis San Jose, like Sima, a secret Jew, but unlike Sima, who held on to their inherited fear of discovery as if it were the breath of life itself, Luis was less sure of punishment, and indeed less sure of what, if anything, they might be punished for. Luis's family had been in Cuba so long, their worship hidden and passed on in such subterfuge that, like the distortions inherent in a child's game of whispers, by the time it was Luis's turn he had no real understanding of Hebrew, no concept that common words and expressions in the hills of Oriente, such as bizcocho, chinela, spacha, were all transparently Judeo-Espanol. He knew he was a Jew, but he wasn't altogether sure he really understood, or cared, what that meant. According to what Moises Manak has told me in letters that began arriving shortly after my first trip to Cuba, Luis and Sima were simple folk, common to the core. They made the torturous trek to church in Santiago de Cuba at Christmas every year, but changed their linens and lit candles now and then on Friday nights. Because Luis and Sima lived deep in the woods, through nearly unpassable roads bristling with orchids and bromeliads and hung with vines, they felt safe enough to be somewhat careless about their faith. Moises Menach tells me my grandparents had braided homemade candles and a brass menorah in plain sight, right next to a small icon of the Virgin of Charity, who was said to have first appeared not far from where they lived. He tells me his family, recently arrived from Turkey, instantly recognized Luis and Sima as Maranos and that they were astonished that there were any Anusim at all left in Cuba, since Jews, for so long banned from the Spanish colonies, had for years been emigrating from Cuba to Mexico, Venezuela, and Costa Rica as they each declared independence and dropped the anti-Semitic prohibitions of their colonial master. We couldn't imagine how Luis and Sima arrived at their situation, if they were just so isolated that they never knew anyone but each other, or if their fear kept them from ever making more than cursory contact with others, Moises wrote me. They were to us, and perhaps to themselves too, the last living Moranos in the New World. Indeed, there were times when the two of them inadvertently fit right in, such as in the days before Yom Kippur when Luis would wake up before dawn and take two chickens, a white cock for him and usually a speckled hen for her, and swing them by their feet around his and her heads, the animals screeching and flapping while the two of them chanted the necessary prayers of thanksgiving and atonement. To anyone who might have spied them performing the caparot, it would have seemed like just another campesino family, infused by the fevers of Santeria, cleansing themselves of whatever evil had been afflicting them. What might have horrified anyone peeking in later is that, after the chickens were properly slaughtered and their guts tossed on the roof for birds, Luis and Sima did not leave the animals to rot as sacrifices to the gods. According to Santaria, the dead birds were now the repositories of all the wickedness absorbed from the lives of the supplicants, but instead prepared them for a delicious and hearty feast. But back then, hardly anyone was looking. In those days, Oriente, what mattered most was sugar, not God and the most devout efforts were reserved for the hard work offered by the ubiquitous mills. Dark, silent Luis, who was stout and strong, made his living by working in the fields, wielding a machete like a swordsman. On his own time during the dead season, he'd work his own small acre, growing malanga and sweet potatoes, and even his own tiny tobacco vega. A woman with the kind of plain beauty that unfolded as you got to know her, Sima knew how to handle her own sharp points taking and sewing between her extensive and arduous duties with the black women in the mill's kitchen. During the months away from the refinery, she'd help in the garden, slipping into Louise's arms between the vines of tobacco, emerging hours later, intoxicated and freed from her fears for a little while, laughing with earth and leaves in her hair. is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday at 10 a.m. Central. This episode featured the work of Aki Obejas, published by Akashic and Ballantine Books. Additional music from this show is from the International Anthem Archive. This episode originally aired on October 8, 2017. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, intro and promo voiced by David Green, with music by Lori Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive.